0: Episode 101 of UConn 360, that is the only podcast known to science that covers the University of Connecticut from every conceivable angle. My name is Tom Breen. I am your facilitator of sorts, coming to you from beautiful stores, Connecticut. And joining me as always is my colleague Julie Bartuka. Julie, how are you?
1: Hey Tom, I'm doing well. Thanks. How are you?
0: I'm doing great. The the summer is is in full swing. The weather's been lovely, and we have our big episode one hundred behind us. I
1: we're know. Feels like charting Surmounted a big obstacle there.
0: Yep. Before you know it, it'll be episode 200. Before Um, you know
1: it, at the rate of four years that it took
0: us. We have a fascinating guest who's going to talk about some really interesting research, I think a lot of people will want to know about today. But before we meet her, let's hit some headlines. You have some things you want to talk about.
1: I do. We have a really exciting national level piece of news. Lynn Malerba, who is a 2008 graduate of our Master of Public Administration program, she made history. About a decade ago, when she became the first female chief of the Mohegan tribe in modern history, and now she's the first Native American to be named treasurer of the United States. Malerba described herself as a Connecticut hometown girl to Yukon today. She earned her bachelor's from Yale. And she will remain chief of the Mohican tribe while serving in her new role under Secretary of the Treasury, Janet Yellen. And another really cool piece of this, another historic piece, is that since Janet Yellen is the first female in her role, it will be the first time that two women's signatures are on U.S. currency, which I thought was fascinating. That's very cool. Yes, congratulations to her. And then another piece that I just wanted to point people to, and I was joking with Jessie McBride, who is the College of Ag communications person, that she's too good at her job and there's only going to be College of Ag stories out because she's so good at pitching them and getting them out there, as we will talk to someone in the College of Ag today. But there's a really good story on UConn Extension, which a lot of people don't really know about. It's part of UConn's kind of mission as a land-grant university. And part of a national network of cooperative extension systems at land-grant universities all across the country. And there are just all these programs and partnerships with state agencies, nonprofits, things like that, that help people in virtually every community in Connecticut with their problems. And if you go to s.uconn.edu slash extension dash July dash 22, you can read some really interesting facts and figures there.
0: Extension is really an invaluable service. I mean, I, I have apple trees and I have a grapevine. And occasionally something will be on the leaves and I won't know what it is. And I'll just take a picture and I will send it to an extension agent and they will tell me what it is and what I should do about it.
1: That's amazing. It's, great.
0: it's an incredible it great. service.
1: As Jesse wrote, um, who are you going to call? Jesse and Stacey Stearns, who wrote that piece.
0: Exactly. Yeah. The only thing I want to highlight is this year marks 60 years of the School of Fine Arts Ooh. at UConn. And uh, there's a fantastic article on UConn today about the anniversary and about the history that went into the School of Fine Arts. I mean, there's been arts education at UConn for obviously more than 60 years. But 60 years since they've been a separate school within the university. And there's some great pictures with that as well of various artistic endeavors you can pursue at UConn. Yeah, so without further ado, let's get to the main event for this week. And we have a really interesting guest. Julie, tell us who we're going to meet. I
1: will. Dr. Lanika Blackman Carr is an assistant professor of community and public health nutrition in the Department of Nutritional Sciences, which, as I mentioned, is in the College of Agriculture, Health and Natural Resources. Dr. Blackman Carr is an expert in behavioral weight control interventions and obesity health disparities, and she is affiliated with a number of institutes here at the university the Yukon Health Disparities Institute, Yukon INCHIP, the Yukon Center for M Health and Social Media, the Yukon Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity, and the Samuel Dubois Cook Center on Social Equity, which is at Duke University. Welcome to Yukon 360. Thank you so much for having me today. Really excited to be with you all. We're excited to have you. And we were tipped off to you in regards to a recent publication you did, which explores the multiple caregiver role that's experienced by many Black women and how that impacts the ability of this population to lose weight. Can you tell us a little bit about that study?
2: Absolutely. So these results, I was really excited to bring out to the public and share what we've been doing. These are secondary results coming from a weight loss study that I implemented some time ago. So we've spent some time really getting out our primary results. But now that I have all this other data on a weight loss trial that really focused on lifestyle change, it was called Sisters in Health, and conducted in North Carolina, where I was prior to coming a little bit prior before I was coming to the University of Connecticut. And so, you know, that overarching study really focused on potentially creating and testing out a solution for weight loss amongst Black women who nationally, we know, experience the greatest burden of obesity. And so certainly work that centers them to really focus on what potential solutions uh, can be created that we need to test in a research capacity that might help control obesity, particularly for this group, was a goal. But in measuring the multiple caregiver aspect within this study as a kind of secondary option, the goal was really to try to understand how does Black women's life world, and this instrument helps us get at that, actually really operate while we're in the midst of trying to Make lifestyle changes um or help black women make lifestyle changes as they desire weight loss. And so this study, again, we've been really excited about finally getting these results out there. And this instrument that we use is a survey. So we administered it at the beginning of our six month weight loss trial and at the end, but really looking to see how does black women's both race and gender role really characterized by this multiple caregiving instrument or survey? impact their engagement in a weight loss study and their ultimate weight loss outcomes. Really, our goal being to reduce weight, but understanding how Black women either identify as a multiple caregiver or even how they might experience it as a barrier is the goal of this paper and reporting that to the public.
0: You've talked about the multiple caregiver, the roles and responsibilities as being the Black superwoman phenomenon, Could you tell us about what that is?
2: Thank you for that question, because I think there are multiple terms in the world and in the research literature about superwoman role. Also, I've heard it called superwoman schema and even just kind of wearing the superwoman cape. And so this multiple caregiving survey is just another term really akin to those others. That's about, again, the intersection of Black women and their gender identity, and their racial identity in the U.S. context, so within the United States. And essentially, to really give a high-level description, this is about how much Black women are really doing for everybody else, but also understanding their cultural and social orientation in the world. So in the Black community, as I've heard and learned about these different terms, superwoman role, schema, multiple caregiving role, What Black women are really giving is high levels of support to everybody else. That support, you know, is often discussed as familial support. But from the Black community perspective, we have a collectivist perspective, if you will, on who we consider to be family. So it's not just blood relatives. It's non-kin. So non you know, blood family relatives who are also part of our family. And so when we think about Black women and the multiple caregiving role they may play, it's a prized position because certainly we look to our matriarchs to provide so much knowledge, love, support. But this multiple caregiving is also experienced by Black women as providing support in lots of different ways. So it might be instrumental, giving people physical or tangible things that they need. It could be economic. So do people need money, you know, for thinking about the challenges that can arise in life, and especially thinking about health disparity populations, definitely economics is part of that as well. It also can include support in the form of a listening ear. So listening to all the challenges that everybody else is going through and being a sounding board for that, but also a solution driver for those things. And so you can imagine doing that for everybody else in your life leaves little to no time for yourself. So what happens in the superwoman role as Black women are wearing the cape is, yes, it is wonderful to be, you know, so highly regarded within the Black community and society, but it does come with a heaviness to that cape. And so that giving to others so much so that you have nothing left for yourself can often be characterized by stress. It can be characterized by being last on the list or not on the list of priorities at all. And so you're not able to engage, even if you have the desire in changing healthy lifestyle habits in doing things that can connect to either maintaining your weight or even reducing weight. And in other literature that I've seen can also connect to engaging in emotional eating and even binge eating episodes. And so this is very much, um, a topic that's been discussed, I would say, in Black feminist literature, but has not really been explored from a weight control research perspective.
1: That's really exciting that you're starting to really dig into that. I was curious, you mentioned that according to CDC data, Black women have the highest rate of obesity of really any group. And this must be one of the main factors. What are some of the other factors that contribute to that? What are some of the other barriers that
2: lead to that disparity? I think it's very far and wide and things that are propagating nationwide our challenge as a nation with controlling weight because what we do see over time for everybody is that these the prevalence of obesity is going up it is not going down and we so we just see it exacerbated in certain groups like black women so what I think you know and I'm thinking broadly here it can really contribute to that are certainly neighborhood level things. So a lot of my work really focuses on the individual level and even interpersonal. So what's going on between people, but a lot certainly is influential on daily decisions of what you can need and how much you can move at the neighborhood level. So is your neighborhood conducive to being physically active? Are there sidewalks? Are there street lights? Is it safe from a traffic perspective? So those who study transportation, this definitely could play into their wheelhouse as well. But there are a lot of things that come from the social determinants of health that play a role in this that I believe are very much underexplored or unexplored as it relates to Black women and Black communities. And I'll just say health disparities communities writ large.
0: Sort of piggybacking off on that. I mean, obviously, when it comes to successful interventions for, for losing weight and, and, and staying healthy. There's no one size fits all option because people live in such different communities and they had such different circumstances. Could you talk about some of the interventions that have been successful in changing behavior and, and helping to improve weight loss outcomes?
2: Absolutely. So I'm going to take us back in time a little bit to the Diabetes Prevention Program, because much of what we do today is still based on this early work that is, I believe, at least a couple of decades old at this point. But are the seminal, multi-center, large studies that gave us the evidence to say that, yes, lifestyle change is the way to go. So the Diabetes Prevention Program is what my weight loss study, where this data from for the multiple caregiving role came from and was based on. So the Diabetes Prevention Program had multiple arms, but what it really was able to show through reducing calorie intake and by moving more, in conjunction with, I'll say, really coming out of psychological sciences, behavior change strategies such as goal setting, monitoring of your weight, what you eat, and how much you move, and other, I'll say, clinical psych behavioral strategies such as problem solving all put together were really powerful for creating weight loss that actually helped prevent diabetes in about, I believe it was 58% of their sample. And that's compared, and that was a better result actually than those who were in that same trial but randomized to a different arm where they received metformin as a method to try to prevent type 2 diabetes. And so weight loss, a part of that trial's outcomes really showed that lifestyle works. The challenge, I think, for the field moving ahead. And I think ever since is really helping humans learn how to modify our behaviors to get such powerful outcomes that really ultimately reduce weight, but have that effect of improving health because that really is what it's about. It's not just weight. It is about health at the end of the day. And so many trials have really informed my work, diabetes prevention trial. Premier, look ahead. These are all trials where when you look at what they did in their interventions, it is about changing what we eat and changing how much we move and doing so within using behavior change strategies that come out of psychology.
1: Can you elaborate on that? I know you do some work with social media and how that can play in and also, you know, just face-to-face how to motivate people to make some of these changes. Can you elaborate a little on what some of the psychology is that, you know, we all kind of, want to know these things in our own lives, I think.
2: Absolutely. And there's a lot out there. I mean, we've seen, I'm sure in commercials, just different companies that talk about their mindset-based approach. And to me, when I'm hearing these things, sitting on my couch at home, I'm like, oh, that's the psychology part. We do that already. Great. Someone just learned how to market it really well right? and, and package it well. So I have to give those companies their kudos. And so some of those psychological components, I mentioned goal setting. It seems really simple, but there's a method to the madness, developing goals that are realistic, that are have a time element to them. So you know how long you're giving yourself to try and achieve this goal. The goal is really specific and measurable. So something like, you know, I'll say in all these weight loss trials, reducing calories is something that we know we need to do. And so typically, we're recommending about 500 calorie reduction a day. So Setting a goal around how you're going to reduce your calories and what you eat and drink could look like today I will consume one less soda throughout my entire day, meals and snacks included, and I will repeat this goal over the next seven days. And it could be as simple as that. Often we have weekly sessions in these lifestyle programs. We'll ask somebody to reflect on how they did in their goal progress. And that will either indicate, yes, you did really great. Now let's move on to the next goal because you've figured that out. So checkbox, here's your gold star. Perfect. But oftentimes as it's a human experience, we need to try things more than once and refine. So this is where another strategy such as problem solving is going to come into play. And so you would analyze really, okay, what got in the way of achieving this goal this week? Do I need to meal plan better? Do I need to remove sodas, you know, from my pantry at home? Or do I not need to go into the break room at work where often those tasty treats are and there's a vending machine and really easy access. So can I avoid that? Or is there a different strategy I can use to navigate this environmental challenge that impacts me reducing my soda consumption for a day? And that kind of builds over a week. And so those are two really simple techniques that we often use in behavioral weight loss programs that that are helpful to folks making those changes on a short term and then hopefully that being rehearsal for long term change.
0: That's fascinating. Some of your work I found particularly interesting is you looked at religious engagement and how that plays a role. Could you talk about some of that? Because I think that's a really, really fascinating area.
2: Thank you for asking about that. My lab, the Reaching Equity in Nutrition Exercise and Weight Lab at UConn, really focuses on questions that have to do with primarily Black women and how we're going to meaningfully address weight control in this demographic. But in doing so, I find that where we need to grow as a field in behavioral weight control is actually considering the context of people's lives. What do I mean by that? I mean, what are all the other elements that could impact what you choose to eat? and how you choose to move that we often don't think about. Much of our weight loss and weight control trials have been conducted in mostly white, predominantly female samples. And so that just doesn't leave a ton of evidence for what actually works and what may be getting in the way as well of making good behavior change that ultimately leads to weight control. That was a long way to get back to religion. For Black folks, there is some peer research data that talked about how religious Adult are in the United States some years ago. And what was very clear from that, which I already knew anecdotally, but it's always nice to have data to back it up, is that Black folks are the most highly religious group in the United States. Very engaged in their religious communities, often attending religious services on a weekly basis, and very much believing in God more so than other groups. And this was work I was doing with my team at Duke, led by Dr. Keisha Benley Edwards of the St. Du Bois Cook Center on Social Equity. And so on this health team, we looked at religion because knowing this, what we know about the Black community and how important religion and faith is to them, we also know that the church happens to be a site where. There can be some foods that are maybe not as congruent with our dietary guidelines for Americans. And so there's always this question of, well, how does our religious life play a role, especially in a population where their engagement with religion is so high? Is this a factor? we really just looked at obesity and and how that was, I would say, looking between men and women who are Christian, Black Christians, I should say. And so this is really exciting work. And just recalling that we found some interesting things, mostly among men, actually. This was a finding we didn't expect, but I believe that men were, the more engaged they were, the higher we saw their rates of obesity. But we did not necessarily see that for women. It Spread other questions that I think we're continuing to investigate, and that team continues to investigate from a qualitative perspective. Which I think, when we pair it, I don't think I will. I will say one hundred percent when we pair our qualitative research and really get the words of people describing what we're seeing in number, our quantitative, our survey data, then we really have robust information to say, now we know directions forward in research. So yes, the religion, religious part can't be excluded. That is part of the social and cultural context for Black folks, because the Black church or predominantly Black church is not only a religious institution, it's a social institution. It is where a lot of social and civic engagement arises from in the Black community. So it has multiple functions and it's just a place where folks are getting together to accomplish and achieve many things on top of engaging in and practicing their faith.
0: I I think that's so fascinating because, you know, we talk about like weight loss apps and stuff. They sort of just assume that everything happens in isolation for an individual, but the social component for eating and exercise, it's such an important part. And and starting at the church level, I think is a really, really smart idea because that is, like you said, it's such an institution in the community.
1: Absolutely. I was curious, and I don't know if you've spoken about this before, but just knowing your expertise and knowing how you, like you said, pair the data and the real people and the context of their lives. I was thinking about, you know, I'm someone who grew up with all this diet culture and Weight Watchers and my mom eating Snackwells and now like this body positivity kind of movement. And you said before that it's not weight loss for the sake of weight loss, it's weight loss for the sake of health. And there's a lot of discussion about that too. Like, do you have to be thin to be healthy? Not necessarily. So I was just curious about your view on how we kind of balance the emotional piece and the body positivity piece and the acceptance
2: piece with the health piece. Oh, my goodness. Well, first, I remember yeah, snack wells. I, for right? some reason, I I, I really remember <laughs> snack wells and their commercials. They were everywhere in the grocery store. That just brought back memories. So, yes, <laughs> I, I remember that. And I do think, you know, if maybe we're hearkening back to our 80s, 90s babies days. But yes, I remember diet culture is very strong. I think that balance between achieving health, but doing that through weight loss, or I'll even say weight control. So I think there's definitely a growing emphasis on maintain and don't gain a phrase that I've seen in work from other weight control researchers that really that's our first stop, you know, on if people decide to go further and do pursue weight loss. Great. But for pretty much everybody, staying where you are is a good place, especially if you're practicing eating well and eating a a high quality from a nutrient perspective diet. And I think even using the word diet, as I'm thinking about it now, maybe we need to rethink that word. Maybe there's a different way to get at eating pattern. Maybe that's a better phrase. It's just not as, it's not as quick and sexy for a marketing perspective. I'll put it like that. But I think the balance is really always going to be coming back to what are the things we're doing on a daily basis? how are we eating? What are our food decisions? And what is influencing our food decisions? Are we eating in connection to a a particular emotion? Are we eating, you know, just for pleasure, which these things are hard to disentangle because pleasure is an emotion, but also we have to eat to survive. So I think there's a lot of, I think, mashup of why we eat. But ultimately, I hope that more research will be done because it's a little bit outside of my area, but I'd love to see more research about how much weight do Black women necessarily need to lose to be healthy? Are we actually achieving the same metrics of health compared to our fellow white women who might be in the same studies or similar studies when we lose somewhat less weight? I think that work is a bit underdeveloped and needs more funding so that we can really start to see what these differences are in weight loss that are important. What we do know from a body composition perspective is that when we compare kind of black and white women, black women tend to have higher lean or muscle mass compared to white women who might be of the same weight. And so if we look between black and white women, even our amount of percent body fat from white to black women at the same weight, Percent body fat is going to be a little bit more in white women compared to black women. So there are these simple physiological differences that we do need to keep in mind. And ultimately somebody who's a registered dietitian, I'm really more interested in, are you eating a high quality diet that's nutritious, not just reducing your calories, but is it actually nutritious? Is it actually still a, a, an eating pattern that's going to help you maintain good health or achieve optimal health? And also, are we sitting less? Are we moving more? Those are the things that eventually connect to waist circumference that's in a a range that's less risky for heart disease. It's going to connect with type 2 diabetes, which we often see those rates rise as we see obesity rates rise. And so getting back to and really focusing on the behavior, not just the weight. I think is what has to be propagated. But it is interesting as a researcher perspective, wearing my faculty hat and knowing what careers demand, there is a way we talk about it, but I do feel a shift when I go to conferences and having informal conversations with colleagues that we all actually feel like there's something starting to shift. And maybe we need to push it a little bit more to really say it's not just about weight, but how do we talk about this differently? Mm -hmm. And then how do we kind of move that up the ladder to get the National Institutes of Health to start to think about weight and obesity in a different way that really we're talking about holistic health. So we've got some work to do, and these are worthy conversations.
0: What's next for your research? Are there any avenues you're hoping to pursue?
2: Well, I'm definitely going to keep studying Black women because there is a lot of undiscovered work here when I think about the multiple caregiver role and, and what we want to do, because what we saw with that study is that as women really identified with the role from a positive perspective, they actually had reduced attendance at weight loss sessions. And it's been proven time and again that the more you attend, the better your outcomes. And so even if Black women are putting on the cape with glee and are happy that like, this is my role and I'm here to play it, that it still actually has a negative effect on their ability to get the most out of these sessions because the time is limited no matter what. And so I really want to study how really we reach Black women where they are. The study I did, the weight loss study this came out of was all in person. So we really could be moving in a direction where we're doing more mobile health, more digital weight loss interventions for Black women so that the accessibility is there and it's higher. Another finding that was important was that, of course, this multiple caregiver role is a double-edged sword. It has positive attributes, but also negative ones. And so for women who saw or really identified it as a barrier, we saw reduced fruit and vegetable intake. So this makes me think, when we start to talk about context and understand these kind of contextual variables, that they operate in really unique ways. So what we now need is a more precise method of intervention that can respond to how people experience their context and how they engage with it. So in this case, where we're seeing less fruit and vegetable intake when women identify it as a barrier, my next work is really about thinking, well, how do we design an intervention that does respond and give the women who perceive multiple caregiver role or other contexts as a negative, what more do they need? to actually engage in the behavior? What kind of supports do we need to provide to really make it possible to reduce this barrier that they might be achieving? And that could be very different from Black women who identify with the multiple caregiver role at it's positive aspects and don't feel or have experienced it as a barrier. So we need more precise study designs to make that happen. I put in a recent grant to k one to start to understand and dig into these things a little bit more. And so I'm really excited to think about weight control, but really continue exploring context because there's just not enough information about how our context from a social, cultural, gendered lens actually impacts our weight and ultimately our health outcomes and even the behaviors that we tout of eating well and moving more. So I've got a lot of work to do and I'm excited to do it and see what the Connecticut community really wants and what black women want and to serve them to the best of my abilities.
1: We can't wait to hear about it. You'll have to come back and update us. Oh my goodness. I'd be
2: happy to anytime. Awesome. Thank you so much, Dr. Blackman Carr. This was fascinating. Thank yes, you thank all you. for having me. This was great. And I look forward to hopefully coming back with some fun results.
0: All right. Uh, so for, for uh, Tom's history, uh, Epoch, I don't know what it is. Epoch.
1: Really. That doesn't epoch. make any sense.
0: <laughs> I found uh, an interesting notice. And I, I'm fascinated by this and I would love to find out what happened to this. Uh so I, I only know the beginning of the story, which is very common for times. This history. is happening more
1: and more. Yeah. You just no you, address a mystery and we never solve
0: it. Part of the problem is that like, there's no follow-up you see. Um, all right. <laughs> so uh, January the 28th, 1988. Oh, um, I was and...
1: 11 days old.
0: Okay. Uh, I would not be born for 15 years. No. Um,
1: uh, yeah.
0: Mm. Uh, I was, I was, I was uh, 10. Uh, I just turned 10. In fact. The headline on this article in the Yukon Advance is urge to mingle drives group of staffers to form a new club for singles. What? So, <laughs> two Yukon employees have found the answers. Oh, So there's questions like, um, are you spending too many nights alone, watching TV, reluctant to go to the movies by yourself? Two Yukon employees have found the answer to such questions is yes, for a surprising number of times for many people who work at Yukon. They estimate there are more than 750 campus employees who are unmarried and wishing they could meet each other and socialize. June Porter, who is secretary in the School of Allied Health Professions, which is now part of CLAS, discussed the problem with Paul McKenna, program director for the Center for Faculty-Staff Development. And just before the holiday break, it started the Mansfield Area Singles Club. They'd already sponsored a number of outings, a trip to the Yukon Providence basketball game, a skating party, an end of the week get-together at what is described as a local tavern, (laughs) and and a visit to a member's home. Um, This is not a dating service, said June Porter. We're simply a coordinating body providing opportunities for adults to meet and share social experiences. They also stressed this was not for students. Students could not participate, but they met regularly at the St. Thomas Aquinas Center on North Eagleville Road. McKenna said, many of us on campus work in isolation. It may be the life a good professor has, but it's not a good condition for meeting people. We know there are single employees on either side of the campus who never get a chance to meet each other. That's why we started the club. So the new singles club is an improvement over awkward encounters between strangers at a local bar, Porter says. The group acts as a common denominator, something to attach yourself to through planned activities. Now, I know that nowadays everyone meets online, That online dating is the way to do it. That You don't have to go to a local tavern anymore and have awkward encounters. But, uh, I think this is a good idea. I, I want to know what happened to the Yukon Singles Club.
1: I know. I am I find it hilarious that this was in the Yukon advance, like this warranted coverage yes, in the Yukon advance. Coverage. Well,
0: 1988, you know, who knows? Uh, not a whole lot happening back then, I guess. I guess. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't know. I feel like we now have uh, far more employees than we did in 1988. In we do. And overall. I mean,
1: a social club in general, like that's a nice thing to have. It
0: is. It is. It's it is. kind I mean, student,
1: of a funny. Students. It's not a dating service.
0: It is not a dating service. I wonder if they <laughs> they if had
1: they get, to say that for legal reasons.
0: Right. Because then they're like, well, it's a, it's a good alternative to meeting people in a bar. It's obviously a dating service. <laughs> um, but I, I would love to know if there were like some lifelong matches formed. Right. That UConn is
1: Stafford. the real that is the real question. Yeah. If you or someone, you know, met in that, what was it called?
0: The Mansfield UConn. Area Singles Club.
1: See, and that's like was it only people who lived in the Mansfield area? Were there right. a lot fewer people commuting from farther away?
0: Yeah, that's the thing. Like, uh, I feel like that's branding-wise, you'd want to get the name Yukon in there. So, right, that. Think.
1: Like, but maybe I mean, they again, maybe they weren't allowed to. It could be.
0: But I mean, we have people who commute to our office from like Norwalk and Harwinton. So I know
1: like
0: Mansfield area would would not be uh, enticing for those folks.
1: That's great. I love it. Yeah. A night at let's, a member's home. I can't believe they put that in there. A house party. There was a house party. This is like if, if the youngins in our office just decided to, you know, hang out. Let's yeah. let's create a club and write about it.
0: Let's, yeah, we'll put it on UConn today. <laughs> Although I will say, any UConn employees listening to this, if you do start a singles club, we will do a story on it for UConn today. I promise. We will, you.
1: because obviously we have to follow up. We need um, to know, though. I We've had those in the magazine. There was... Uh, an influx of stories of couples who met as students at UConn. So let's tell me your staff stories. Come on. I know there's married staff members out there.
0: And I actually know of people who met their spouse while working at UConn. Yeah. uh, Or their significant other. So like, I I know those, those stories are out there.
1: For sure. But I really want to know if they met in this organization. Like we need to know if this succeeded. Yes. How long it lasted too.
0: It's one of those things where I, I don't think of 1988 as being particularly long ago, but now that I think about it, it's more than thirty.
1: Thirty four years. years, Tom.
0: Whew. Wow, for uh, for Zoomers like me, that's a that's oh. a lifetime ago. Well, anyway, so that's that's my that's my uh, wait, Tom's week. Wait till Tom's your phone
1: stops ringing.
0: <laughs> oh, yeah. I
1: want the ringing phone in the podcast.
0: You sure? <laughs> it'll, it'll give it'll give people some sense of the hectic nature of my work.
1: Yes, you're, you're a regular old. Uh, news hound over there.
0: Well, all right. So if you, uh, if you met your significant other through Yukon singles club, let us know. And you can find us online at Yukon podcast, or you can find me at TJ Breen. I'm always looking for tips on history. (laughs) And thanks to a friend of the pod, Stephen Mitchell for sending a neat 1940s Yukon banner. That's uh, currently up on eBay that I will not be bidding for because it is, they're looking for $750 for it, but it's a very cool (laughs) banner. And uh, you can find Julie at Julie Partuga. Is there anything else you want people to know Julie?
1: No, I want them to know that you still haven't posted on main underscore old anything at all. I not know. even what I I've know. been asking you to post just anything since I March.
0: I know I'm, I'm, I'm a disgrace. You are. I, I did file a public records request with, um, uh, no, I did. I, I, I filed a public records request asking for any complaints about WHUS. Oh, so that's we'll see great. what they say. This yeah. will be fun. Um, That's a future
1: history corner. I'm excited. You're making some poor sap who works at the FCC.
0: (laughs) Putting putting on my reporter hat once again.
1: Do this research for you. Oh, my God. That's great. I love it.
0: Okay. Thanks for listening, everyone. And um, we'll be back before you know it. (laughs)